Welcome to Brown Bag Religion, the MF Casser podcast. It's 11.30 on a Tuesday. It's not just any Tuesday. It's the International Women's Day. And uh, congratulations to all. It's, it's a day of celebration. It's a day of affirmation. It's a day of protest. And hence, it's a very good day also for uh, our MF Casser lunch today. And particularly... I'm so pleased to have you as our guest today, Christine Soraya Batmangelech. Sorry, Batmangelech. Uh, and um, we are looking very much forward to hearing your uh, exposition today. You are pref- at present an associate professor of modern Iran mm-hmm. uh, on the Department of Middle East Studies at the University of Oslo. Mm-hmm. So, uh, is it a good day? For you quite i never know what to say no <laughs> because you know international women's day is of course incredibly important but i'm always of the side that says every day should be international right. women's day yes we get one day out of 365 <laughs> right yes somewhat troubling that's, yeah that's that's certain and that's a good <laughs> comment from which to start your uh, research is uh, on or you have issued you have published this book yeah. that took you some 12 years 12 years yeah. to write and now you're going to present it in 15 minutes it's <laughs> it's almost uh you know it's it, it's it's uh, rude to to ask you to do so but in these times of twitter and uh, short spaces and time uh, lapse please go ahead 15 minutes uh, give us a taste of it and okay. then we have the possibility of q a Okay, wonderful. Thank you, Sterla. And thank you to the Kasser crew, uh, Liv and Esther, for inviting me. Um, and also to Sami. He's not here because he's with our, our daughter. Right now, um, um, I present to you my book. Um, it, as I said, it, it's, a, it's a 12-year project and it's a labor of love. It's one of these particular projects where I was quite hesitant to publish it in large part because it determines my fate, right? I'm also an Iranian national. And so it really sets me up for a series of things to happen in my future that one does not want if one is a dual national, so American and Iranian. But um, in in telling you so, I should actually start from where I um, commenced this particular project. Um, I was working on a a series of uh, works related to maternity in Iran for my dissertation work. And you know, when you're doing ethnographic work, when you get on the ground, you quickly realize that the project um, is inadvisable or it just doesn't, um, it's, it's not what, you, what, is it, what your heart wants. And right around 2006 or 2007, when I was uh, um, in certain areas of Iran, I was um, based primarily in Tehran and I would go to different cities. There was a lot of blog reports, news reports about something that was happening in an area called Haftatir, which is a, um, a kind of um, a manteau district. For those of you who have been to Iran, you know that there's a particular uh, form of clothing that we wear. Um, and it's a, a manteau, a, a typical you know, outside wear that we have. And um, there was a lot of reports about how uh, the mannequins that were sort of sporting these different designs all of a sudden had their uh, um, their breasts or their torsos cut off and this kind of stuff. And I was, uh, found it quite strange. And so I went to this particular area, which sells a lot of clothing. And 
I just looked around and yes, indeed, there were multiple mannequins who had their breasts cut off. And when you would ask Iranians why this is the case, um, because it had sort of fallen, it, you know, it was particularly in this path under Ahmadinejad, um, where President Ahmadinejad, where they were, you know, issuing forth morality police and so on and so forth. And so, you know, people would laugh and say the mannequins have breast cancer. I thought this is a very cruel thing to say. This is, of course, in jest, but there's something behind this. And so then I started to do more work and I started to see, you know, looking at the disciplinary technologies, the regulatory technologies of sexuality, um, not just on women, but on things that are sort of representative of women. So the mannequin, monuments of women, so on and so forth. And I started looking then into mar marginalized communities and so on and so forth. And I started to see these particular kinds of patterns. Now, my work is situated within Iranian studies and Middle Eastern women's studies. It is not the kind of topic that goes well with um, sort of other fields because it is, it is one where one has to know social history, Iranian history, um, Islamic discourse, um, how sort of gender policies and so on and so forth and how they come together. And also at this time that I was doing my research, I was looking at the literature that was quite sort of hegemonic at the time. And there was a particular book called uh, um, Passionate Uprisings, which became the literature that students would read in Middle Eastern studies programs, in women's studies programs, particularly in the United States and also in, in, um, in England. It would become the kind of be all and end all of understanding sexuality in Iran. And if you read this, you see that the author provides a pr pretty restrictive understanding because she's focusing on Tehran youth, right? In a sort of upper milieu. And the more I read these kinds of books, there is a series of them published 2008, 2009, um, you know, uh, about sexuality, modernity in Iran. There always were very limited with regards to the scope of the history, always based on these kinds of grand narratives, revolutionary narratives of the idea that in 1979, everything changed. You went from kind of Pahlavi dynasty, Western imperialism, modern society, modern developing society, and in 1979, you end up with the Islamic Republic. So often I felt a little bit strange about this particular um, explanation. It had become an explanation of going from a period of, of some kind of modernization, westernization, aka quote unquote freedom, to this period of um, um, liberalism or a period of sort of Islamic um, dogmatic thinking. But when you actually are on the ground and you do the work and you see how integratory many of these integratory the, these discourses are of public health, morality, gender policy, um, so on and so forth you see that there are sort of these repetitive narrations of accessible um, kind of lifestyles and realities and sexualities that are being pumped over and over again, but they do not date to 1979. They date actually to, you can even go back to the 1920s and 1930s, but right around the 1960s, I started to see the actual visual material, visual culture. Um, so I, would, I focused on the kind of non-normative sites where sexuality is regulated um, and didn't focus on the veil. I couldn't care less about the veil. I focused on sites where the magazines that had changed, quote unquote changed, gone from um, under the um, Pahlavi regime, talking about the modern woman, the new woman. And I, and I focused on 
one particular magazine and how it's called Zanarus and how really after 79, the same type of tropes found themselves just being repeated, but using a kind of Islamic coding of some sort, but the same type of generalizations and such about women and their sort of submission to men, their ways of, of having a kind of, of obedience to men in a particular way, sexually in marital relations and so on and so forth. I just charted this. I then also focused on this idea of compulsory forgetting because that story of 2006, 2007 of the mannequins, if you ask any Iranian today about that particular period of time, somewhat forgotten. You would have to go back, of course, to the rabbit hole that is Google and sort of find pictures of this, but it's forgotten. And I started asking myself, if we then chart throughout this sort of recent, uh, you know, post-revolutionary history, we go through episodes where the same thing is sort of compulsorily forgotten, saying, oh, that's just gender policy of the Islamic Republic. And I just don't accept that. And the reason why I don't accept that is because in the history, in the, in the modern history of Iran, since the late 19th century, early 20th century, for about a 100 year period of time, there was a regulated sex district in Tehran called Shahrno, New City. And for your perusal, I have provided you with pictures. They were actually offered by Kadagolistan, who was a really famous war photographer in Iran. And he shows you the kind of inner life of this particular city. But if you ask anyone who is, let's say 45 and below about this 100 year period of time where the sex district, there was something ridiculous, like 16,000 men would visit daily to have some type of sexual activity with prostitutes. And it became, it was discussed among different clerics. It was just, I mean, the, the, there are sort of stories about famous madams who joined with um, some hooligans to take down the uh, Iranian government of Mossadegh in the 50s, right? So it's very much part of Iranian history, but yet after 79, gets sort of folded into the annals of this post-revolutionary sort of discourse of, oh, that was then. But how can it be forgotten? Something that happened for a hundred years that religious clerics were sort of uh, talking about, trying to find solutions for, right? And so in my research, um, for any of you who, who are anthropologists, ethnographers, sociologists, you're familiar with studying Iran, you're familiar with the work of Shala Hayri. And she has a really famous book called Law of Desire, Temporary Marriage in Shia Iran. I want to quote to you something that she said that was quite, um, it stayed with me. She said, in Iranian society, sexuality comes to be a cultural signature because of which it is simultaneously perceived as precious and treacherous to its original master. Now, I have nothing to say about the precious, precious and treacherous. I have something to say about her emphasis on the sinister, cultural sinister. Do you guys know what that is? No, sinister? I think you should explain that. So it is, it is a thing or a person that comes to be the center of attention, right? And for me, I'm most intrigued by the mobility, this movement of comes to be, how something like sexuality, which has historically been incredibly precarious, mobile, um, and so on and so forth, especially in accordance to Islamic jurisprudence, especially in, a, in accordance to just the way people sort of live their lives, right? Um, how is this regulated by subsequent regimes in different sites, right? And so I was so intrigued on the, the kind of regulatory measures, which I use the work of a woman, a, a geographer, a British geographer, 
at the University of Sheffield, Julie Ballantyne. She talks about bodily technologies. And bodily technologies are these particular mechanisms that take the quote unquote disabled body to make it abled. So she uses the example of a wheelchair, takes a disabled, quote unquote disabled person and makes it able-bodied. But at the same time, it has a disciplinary function because that person is in a wheelchair and you know confined to the wheelchair. So then I looked at this particular motif of disciplinary technology, bodily technology, and how is this in the site for a monument that after the revolution, let's say of a man or a woman, which prior to the revolution was known as a, a, a communist symbol in the park of the Musée um, Honarmand, the, the museum, the modern art museum, that after the revolution, a veil is put on it. And I start to look at the discussions among different sort of curators as to why they need to put a veil on it. I look at other monuments of uh, one called an angel of freedom, which was very much in front of, of the parliament and how that was sort of, you know, readers coming in and trying to remove the statue. And I tried to look at what is the discourse around why these particular statues of women's bodies have to be removed. And so looking at discussions of modesty and immorality and how this sort of gets fed into the population that previously heralded such things. But then I also look at its impact on women, in particular prostitutes. So the story of Shahrino that I mentioned in this particular red light district is a very, it's a one of travesty because right at, you know, a couple within a month after the revolution, the sex district, which was about 10 to 12 alleyways, and I provide for you a map of it from the 1960s, it was bulldozed and its madams were sort of, of, of um, killed um, through capital punishment, but the prostitutes were then reintegrated into society. And there have been many reports about um, they were, you know, used to sort of be the first defense of the Islamic Republic in the sense of, of to sort of retrain women into more sort of um, accessible or jobs. So they would become from, they would work in particular trains, trades um, such as handicrafts or sewing and so on and so forth. But others in the 1980s were sort of, they were, highly encouraged to marry Iranian war veterans during the Iran-Iraq war as a kind of um, way of penance, right? So you had prostitutes who had lived a particular life for a period of time, and they were said, we will absolve you if you provide comfort, sexual comfort to these war veterans. So all of these particular stories, I sort of chart, and I, and I put in what I call this, you know, it's a, it's a kaleidoscope, of, of course, where I talk about just the different stories, the different narrations of the regulation of sexuality, because I need to get away from this study of the veil. For me, it's not, to, it doesn't show how, how dynamic, pluralistic Iranian society is. And this was my response then to the books in the 2008, 2009 that have sort of taken precedence in many um, pensums or syllabi throughout the globe. And so I offer this as my humble contribution to that discussion. So let's see what happens. Or as we say in Persian, Bebinim Chimisha, let's really see what happens. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so any questions that you have?